0: Today we are continuing our deep dive into the relationship between science fiction, the imagination, and technology. I'm speaking with DJ McLennan, a writer of speculative fiction and nonfiction from the Isle of Skye in the Highlands of Scotland. His new book, Future Bright, Future Grim, and for listeners, that is Grim with two M's, Transhumanist Tales for Mother Nature's Offspring. Reboots the Grimm's Brothers' fables to imagine how fairy tales help us imagine the future and how science fiction blends with fairy tale mythologies as technology becomes increasingly embedded in our bodies and our landscapes. Hi, DJ. Hi. So, DJ, your book is titled Future Bright, Future Grim. Now, listeners can't see the words in front of them. They're hearing this phonetically. So just to specify for listeners, the last word in the title is spelled G-R-I-M-M with that extra M at the end so that we get the idea that both the future is grim in the sense of it being the opposite of bright. It's dire, it's foreboding, it's dystopian, but it's also grim in the sense of the famous Grimm Brothers, names synonymous with the fairy tale. Can you talk a little bit about the title of the book?
1: Yes, the bright, I guess, hints at the kind of dazzling potential of our future. And in many ways, it's so bright as to be blinding. And yeah, you're right, it's grim in both senses as terrible and dystopian and awful, um, potentially, but also because it's based on the tales of the Brothers Grimm. As to the subtitle, I'm sure we'll talk about transhumanism a bit later on, but that's to do with upgrading or going beyond humanity in its current 1.0 form, if you like. And the Mother Nature's offspring bit um, comes from a letter to Mother Nature, which is an essay by the transhumanist philosopher Max Moore. And that he's kind of appealing to Mother Nature for a a renegotiation of humankind's current relationship
0: with her. I'm thinking of fairy tales and almost... In every single fairy tale, we have a character turned into a different identity or a character who appears in the form of an animal or a non-human animal. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about transhumanism and what transhumanism has to do with the genre and the legacy of the fairy tale? Oh, so the question was really about transhumanism, whether transhumanism is something that we're thinking about newly in our age of technological production or whether transhumanism is an older form of thinking and what its relationship to the fairy tale is.
1: Yeah, transhumanism is about, as I mentioned, it's about upgrading the human condition. And it seems like a fairly, fairly modern idea, but actually goes much further back. And there are people, for example, back in Renaissance times talking about, about this. And they, they tended back then to talk about it in terms of religion, like what does God want from us? Um, what are God's expectations of what we should and shouldn't be allowed to do? In, in in modern times, it's become um, much more radical. It's, it's almost like a demand that we can um, have this kind of morphological freedom, as it's called in transhumanism, to do whatever we want with our bodies. And you can see the crossover with fairy tale there because there's a, an awful lot of transformation going on in fairy tales and changes of bodies, people transforming into animals. And Quite often in in fairy tales that seem as seen as a kind of a a curse. People don't want to be turned into animals and transhumanists see it very differently. We see the human form as as very flawed and we we see our lifespans as being very short and, and we think that there's all sorts of ways that we can use technology to uh, improve that situation and to to have less suffering in the world.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in this question of transhumanism and its relationship with the way that the way that we're thinking about transhumanism is changed by technology. I mean transhumanism as you pointed out, has an older genealogy in religion. Human beings across different religions thought of themselves as merging with different non-human animal forms. Of course, this is something that the fairy tale does all the time, right? So I'll give you an example. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast centers on questions of mistaken identity transformation and magical creatures. And the whole story is pivoted around all of these three things. Um, a prince in Beauty and the Beast is turned into a magical beast because of the bodily transformation. No one can recognize him as a prince. And then the story is pivoted around his return to human form, which is transformation mobilized by a woman who falls in love with him, um, who turns him back into a human and to himself. But in sci-fi and increasingly in our actual technologies. What we, I think, are seeing is a form of transhumanism that actually asks us more and more to think of our bodies as tethered to or transformed by our technologies. So, for example, I'm thinking about the wearable, the Fitbit that records our motions that records our activities and then changes our behavior by the recording of our activities. Or I'm thinking of even on a more severe scale, Peter Thiel, who wants to transform the human body into something that does not die. So I'm thinking now about how our technologies change the idea of the transhuman. Are we now increasingly becoming what some people have talked about as the cyborg, the kind of human being who is part human, part technology? Is there a relationship between how the fairy tale thinks about human transformation in transhumanism and the way that technologists think about transhumanism and the transformation of bodies into our tech? Well... I think fairy tales teach us a lot about
1: our own desires for transformation and and transcendence and and from a young age we learn that it's possible to yearn for transformations that seem completely impossible in our everyday lives. I mean, there there was a story this week about a xenotransplant, a a heart of a pig being transferred into a man. And that sounds like something straight out out of a fairy tale. But in fairy tale, that would be a a kind of punishment, perhaps an enchantment that uh, you might wish to be released from. But in mine, the the transformation is usually more of a, a solution. There's all these kinds of desires that we have that are almost fairy tale-like. Um, we want to fly free as birds, and we maybe want to run like we're wearing seven league boots, or we, we want to eat fox godfather death like Peter Thiel talks about doing. But these things are thinkable. These are things that we can think, that we can imagine. And as Wittgenstein said, what is thinkable is also possible. So we have these grand soaring thoughts that fairy tale and fantasy give voice to. Um, often in a very crude and simplistic form. But it's kind of natural that we seek ways to actualize them. Um, And the actualization comes about in a very different way of thinking, doing and understanding. And we call that science, or we call it technology. And the means to the end look very different from magic, and they're, because they're sort of mired in the technicalities of taking pills um, to extend lifespan, or doing open heart surgery, or coding algorithms, or wearing your Fitbit, or making Wi-Fi devices that communicate efficiently with each other. But it's still about the fulfillment of desires and almost the, the granting of wishes, and 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 perhaps. Um, that is part of our, our human flourishing and what the what the ancient Greeks called eudaimonia. It's flourishing that doesn't interfere with our lives in ways that might be bad for us. Like you might feel feel like you're flourishing if you're taking some kind of drug like heroin and that it feels completely amazing to you, but obviously it's antithetical to the idea of actual flourishing as as a person and living a full life as human beings. So I think. That fairy tales teach us to accept bodily transformation as a natural part of the workings of the universe. And if we take out the morality tale elements from that and make the transformations more morally neutral, we can view fairy tales as telling us that kind of that we're all potential changelings.
0: Well maybe let's dig in a little bit more to the idea of the fairy tale or what we sometimes call the form or the genre of the fairy tale. How do we understand the history of the fairy tale? Who were the Grimm brothers and why or what about this form or genre is exciting to you?
1: A fairy tale is a concise piece of folklore. It's a type of fable and it would have come out of oral storytelling traditions originally and uh, the popularity of the form rose in the late 18th and early 19th century initially in in western europe and those tales are often moralistic and cautionary partly because they came out of protestant christian ideas of morality and and those ideas were probably overlaid onto earlier pre-christian or even uh, pagan tales so that can be a pretty uneasy fusion and it can can make them quite dark in a way, and the Grimms themselves, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, mostly active in the in the early and mid nineteenth century, they were philologists, so they were collecting they were collecting fairy stories and folklore, um, mostly from the oral tradition of storytelling. And there's this romantic idea that they were gadding about the country, collecting these tales, but no, they were actually academics, and they were based at the University of Marburg, and people would come to them with these stories, and also they would research earlier written versions of the stories and incorporate them into their, their collections. So they were collecting folklore for educational purposes, but we have to remember that this was a time also of the rise of Romanticism in Western Europe. and. There was also a trend for the cataloguing of cultural artefacts, physical artefacts and cultural artefacts. In a sense, the brothers were also part of that process of building a a shared German identity and culture. But um, as as the tales gained in popularity outside of academia, the Grimm started to, to play with them more and they added new stories to the collections. They bulked out the shorter tales, they added to them and they edited them and Increasingly, they started to sanitize them as well and and take the the sharp edges off them. So on the face of it, they're, they're very white Western Christian morality tales. But we have to remember there's a lot of medievalism and dark ages in them, and they probably had quite pagan roots as well.
0: Yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, first let me just comment that, uh, in case our readers need any more evidence that grimness is associated with academia, I think you just gave it to them in telling us that the Grim Brothers were actually academic. Yeah. I'll leave listeners to determine for themselves whether or not they want to make the implications about that. But I, I do want to ask you a question about this kind of relationship between fairy tales and the past. You placed fairy tales in a kind of antiquated, say, even pagan past, a very kind of long ago past fairy tales start once upon a time, which is at the same time, you know, timeless, but also hearkening back to an older time. You brought up romanticism, romanticism being a movement in the late 18th century that invoked certain principles of an emerging kind of global world of that particular moment. And so the fairy tale itself is set in the past in terms of its history and also the way that we think about it. Fairy tales include princes, princesses, castles, dragons, characteristics of earlier times. One of the ways we signpost something as a fairy tale is to give it that kind of antiquated medieval romantic past. So I'm kind of curious about the relationship between fairy tales set in the past and the ways in which you're talking about fairy tales or using fairy tales uh, in terms of a way to think about our technologies as futuristic or as forward looking. So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that the fairy tale seems almost oppositional or orthogonal to concepts of technology or futurism, is it?
1: Um, In some ways, but I think the orthogonality, if you want to put it that way, is is part of the attraction. And I guess the kind of readers I appeal to appreciate that kind of those kind of cross-genre experiments. And it's the kind of thing I love to read myself. And I kind of want to feel that my mind's struggling to incorporate those kind of crossovers. And I kind of want to believe that there's a route to the fantastical coming coming true. Science fantasy is a kind of growing genre. I'm thinking of authors like Neil Stevenson, who's doing great work with uh, books like Anathem or um, Fall or Dodge in Hell. And then you've got uh, Dan Simmons with his Olympus and Ilium books, where he's blending Greek myth and legend with sci-fi. I don't know, what do we really mean by futuristic anyway? If if something appears futuristic in terms that we understand now, then it's a result of our current thinking, which is probably grossly inaccurate, because we don't really understand the terms the future will actually be couched in. Um, There's this quote I love. I mentioned J.B.S. Haldane earlier on, and there's this quote I love from him. The the universe is not just stranger than we imagine. It's stranger than we can imagine. Now, you could put the word future there in in place of universe. So the future is not just stranger than we imagine. um, It's stranger than we, we can imagine. We just don't understand the terminology of the future, so we get tied up in knots with it. If we think about human desires as the key driver, that's what's interesting to me. Unless we engineer away our current desires and turn them into something else, and Yuval Noor Harari talks about this, about the concept of kind of desire engineering. Humankind is going to come to the point where it desires these sorts of powers, the kind of powers that were previously the province of magicians and magical beings and gods. And technologies are are the route to those kind of powers. So we're either going to use the technologies to change our very desires, so we want something that's perhaps better for us in terms of the eudaimonia and flourishing I was talking about earlier on, or we're going to find ways to to grab those powers and turn ourselves into magical beings and gods, which is something Parari talks about in his book um, Homo Deus.
0: I want to then talk a little bit about this kind of idea of futuristic. You problematize the term futuristic or the idea of the future, but I I want to press you a little bit on that because. I think that fairy tales, or at least the way you're telling fairy tales, points us toward elements of how people think about the future. For example, there are elements of kind of uh, newfangled technologies, things that people would usually encounter in a science fiction novel or in a pitch by a startup to produce some sort of new technological product. Are you thinking about technology as a form of futurism and the fairy tale in relationship to technology as producing a kind of futuristic look? Or is your idea of the fairy tale doing something entirely different? Are these technologies just new ways of kind of reproducing the past? Or how do you think about the idea of unfolding new or futuristic technologies if you don't believe in the idea of kind of the futuristic?
1: I guess I want to get across in my work the idea that the future can be so fantastical that we don't currently have a way to fathom it that we don't have the the right sort of language to fathom it that we shouldn't expect the future to look anything like the present or anything anything like the past I think that's a, a big cognitive mistake that that people make so I think it's helpful to put it in terms of the completely fantastical and then think about how do we actually get to that point? How could technology actually bring us to that point? That's what really interests me. And sometimes I don't really get that out of science fiction because it's getting so caught up in the in the technological bells and whistles, it misses the wonder that we are actually striving for. If we love fantasy and we have these huge soaring kind of ideas, I think that science fiction can sometimes get caught too caught up in the technicalities and miss these kind of soaring feelings that we get out of fantasy and fairy tales.
0: Well, let me ask a question about the relationship between science fiction and the fairy tale. You say that sometimes science fiction gets too caught up in the bells and whistles of their technologies to communicate a kind of finer uh, point about the philosophy of, for example, the way that those technologies may change what it means to be human. How do you think about the relationship between the fairy tale and science fiction? Are they the same animal in different forms? Are they different kinds of genres entirely? Do they share connections with one another?
1: Yeah, as I mentioned before, some sci-fi is very concerned with the technical details of future technologies, and and I do enjoy that kind of science fiction. And I I guess fairy tales are an early form of what we now call fantasy. Uh, A lot of fantasy tropes stem from fairy tales, and so many fantasy tropes come from, say, The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, which is, of course, very firmly rooted in mythology and fairy tale. And that makes the magic kind of mundane, just an ordinary part of life life. Um, Weird things just become as run-of-the-mill as, say, hanging out the washing. Uh, Sci-fi and fantasy, I think, cross over a lot more now in, in literature, and that began to happen a lot in the 1970s with authors like Michael Moorcock and his Dancers at the End of Time series. And they're about future beings that can use the power of entire suns uh, to manipulate reality and, and kind of turn it into fantasy game just to amuse themselves their powers are that great so their their powers are so immense as to be effectively magical and they wield those powers in ways that we'd normally associate with fantasy. Um, And now we're seeing science fantasy emerging more as a genre in its own right. And that certainly has roots in both fairy tale and sci-fi and all kinds of speculative fiction now being mashed together. But I think I wanted to merge sci-fi and fairy tale more directly without the kind of intervening fantasy. So my stories are kind of neo-allegorical, I guess, or even meta-neo-allegorical, if that's not too clumsy a
0: phrase. Can you say what you mean by that
1: phrase? Fairy tales can be very allegorical. So I've taken those fairy tales and given them the language of modernity. And then I'm also saying, above and beyond that, the kind of meta element of it is that not just that those stories are allegories, but those stories are actually real. The seemingly allegorical elements are actually happening in the reality of the story, enabled by some bizarre future technology.
0: I want to get a little bit into... uh, at some of your fairy tales in particular. Walk us through one of the fairy tales you wrote or rewrote in the book. How do you rewrite a time-worn fairy tale to bring up new questions about technology?
1: One example of that is my story, Sweet Quicksilver, and it's based on the sweet porridge as, as the short version of the tale by the Grimm's was originally known. And it later became known in extended form as the magic porridge pot. So in the original, this pot seems like a huge boon; it can produce all this porridge, and until it starts to overflow, and the little girl involved in the story doesn't have the right command to stop it, so it occurred to me to kind of turn this into a nanotech catastrophe. Um, it's it's the grey goo problem. Molecular scale manufacturing is something that we start to hear about a lot these days and with that you could create a kind of cornucopia machine in that you could use any old atoms any old molecules and turn them into whatever you wanted but without a way to properly control that process or or to interact with its controlling artificial intelligence it could easily get out of control so then all atoms become the same to this machine and it could start turning the whole universe into this kind of gray goo.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is something that I think about all the time in, in the context of you know thinking about AI and what we're programming AI to do. The famous example that I use sometimes when I talk to students about this is, say that you program an AI with an environmental consciousness to reduce the amount of carbon emissions in our world, on our planet right? Ethical aims. It's very well known that amount of carbon emissions is very high, higher than can reasonably sustain the kind of life that we would like to continue to live and the kind of atmosphere that we would like to continue to have. And in that context, you build an AI whose task it is, and it's, which is programmed to reduce carbon emissions, of course. Um, one of the largest sources of carbon emissions are live human beings. So the first thing that the AI would do is eliminate human beings. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about here with the paperclip problem?
1: That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. And instead of using the little girl in my story, I've called the characters meta-witches and they're they're futuristic characters, but they fall prey to exactly the same problem that the little girl with the magic porridge pot encounters or the same kind of problem that you've just been talking about. It all comes down to this this artificial intelligence control problem. We have no idea how to control this, this entity, whatever form it happens to
0: take. So then when you're talking about this story, forgive me, I forgot the title, but I'm going to call it the magic porridge story because that's how I'm remembering it here. Does the magic uh, porridge story end well in its original version or does it end poorly?
1: It does end well in its original form. The little girl is able to stop the magic porridge pot from drowning the world, basically. In mine, not so well. And why
0: does it end not so well? What made you make the decision to have it end not so well in your rewriting of this happily ever after fairy tale?
1: I guess that's just the way it felt like it was going when when I was writing it. And I also, I think, wanted to get people to think about what that would actually mean for all intelligent life to be destroyed by this crazy goo.
0: I guess, you know, this is really interesting to me because when we're thinking about our technological impulses and technological products, many of those who create those technological products also believe that their technological products will end happily ever after. In other words, their technical products will be built with a utopian vision and that with the addition of their technological products, we will be closer to that utopian vision. Of course, fairy tales seem to offer the same kind of promise that things will end Happily ever after is that your sense of how it actually works in the real world? Are our technologies enabling us to live happily ever after, and if if not, what's the complication there? Does that change how you think about the the form of the fairy tale when you're engaging in questions of building the tech into them
1: happily ever after what what does that actually mean? Uh, I think that that um, happiness in our lives is is really kind of momentary. I, I kind of go back to the desire engineering thing there. That's an interesting problem in itself. What does it actually mean to be happy? How do you generate happiness in a way that is not breaking the process of human flourishing? How, how could you uh, use technology to create a real sort of happiness and have a real hap- happily ever after? That's, that's something that, that fascinates me. But of course, as a writer, sometimes the kind of cautionary elements sort of override all that. You want to um, talk about what can happen when things go completely horribly wrong. But I want to do it in a non-moralising kind of way. I want to do it in a a way that's not too didactic. And I hope that my stories achieve that.
0: In fairy tales, morality is very frequently and starkly divided into good and evil, and oftentimes the fairy tale contains a moral takeaway for readers. But your fairy tales are much less stark or overt in their moral pedagogy. Does the involvement of technology in these stories alter or change the kind of, I don't know, moral firmness or resolution that's typical for the kind of older, more traditional Form of the fairy tale?
1: Well, we, we definitely have these certain expectations when we're presented with a, a story in this fairy tale form. There'll be some kind of moral message in it. And and um if you look at Grimm's fairy tales, that's quite often the correct expectation to have. And the morality, even if it's not morality we would understand very well in the modern context It's a key ingredient in the mix, but we don't really understand the morality of the future. I think perhaps what some people now deride as being woke might be a reasonable way to understand it. I think of woke as just being awake and enlightened. And I think that the the enlightenment is something that we should pursue. And this relates to a quote in my book from the polymath engineer Danny Hillis. and, And he says, the enlightenment's now becoming the entanglement. So we're completely intertwined with our technology, and definitions of natural and artificial no longer make sense. And I think I try to get that across. So we have this technological and ethical entanglement, and it's it's very hard to understand what the morality of that situation is going to be. But it certainly isn't something I can get across, as I mentioned, in a in a, a didactic way. I I appreciate that fairy tales have this certain moral element to to them and some people hold fairy tales very sacred almost but and and partly because of that but but i certainly i certainly don't i want people to question the morality of fairy tales and question the mora- morality of the present and really think about what the morality of of the future might be. Uh, I think it's interesting to, to, to think in those terms, to, to project forward and think about how um, the citizens of the future might think about our present
0: morality. But how do fairy tales help us do that? Or how does at least interrogating fairy tales help us do that?
1: It can certainly show us how morality has changed. You you can see the the Christian morality of the past that that made complete sense at the time these fairy tales were published makes very little sense to us now and seems quite brutal, the kind of hierarchy and supposed justice and just desserts in these fairy tales and especially if we read them in the original form, now seem completely brutal, so that certainly gives us a strong
0: hint that we might be getting it very wrong now. But I guess I go back to something like Beauty and the Beast and I say, well, sure, there are things about Beauty and the Beast that I would prefer to not carry into the 21st century, for example. I think that women should be able to uh, marry whoever they want to marry or partner with whoever they want to partner with. I think that the idea of the beautiful princess has been something that's very much interrogated in our our present. And of course, we have a different way of thinking about non-human animals or beasts. We also have a different way of thinking about, you know, Whether or not we want to be repulsed or not repulsed by certain appearances of a person or certain bodily forms of a person. Bestiality itself, as a kind of metaphor for not looking pretty, is probably one of them. But there are things about Beauty and the Beast that I think retain significance and a kind of morality that we do want to take into the 21st century. For example, one of the principal dimensions of Beauty and the Beast is the quest for one's authentic identity or the wish to return to an a sense of one's authentic identity. The idea that finding love is a way to reveal that kind of identity and that we should search for that kind of connection with another entity or another being in order to reveal our own sense of true or authentic identity. So there is a kind of morality, at least in that fairy tale, and I would argue across many different fairy tales that we might uh, abide by. You know, I think about, for example, Hansel and Gretel. Okay, sure, we don't want to maybe teach uh, kids that old women are evil, right? (laughs) That's something that we probably want to leave behind. But we do maybe want to bring along the caution of the allure of you know cheap empty forms of calories or cheap empty nutrition, whether it is actually candy or whether it is, you know, absent or vacant media forms, right? That cheap kind of consumption. So I guess I want to just like push on that idea that fairy tales demonstrate to us in the 21st century that older forms of morality are antiquated entirely. There is a sense I think in which fairy tales, or at least the fairy tales we remember, maintain a place in in our memory and in our consciousness, because they actually do contain a kind of essential morality that carries over from time to time. And certainly, I guess one just last paragraph of thought is that certainly this is true in our context of technological production as a form of fairy tale. I think about the oldest forms of uh, thinking about technological production, and they tend to follow the same kind of uh, bell curve from enchantment to disenchantment. We see this everywhere from Icarus, who creates wax wings to allow him to fly to the sun, and then is uh, speedily thrown to the ground into his death when those wings melt. Or consider Frankenstein's monster, the idea that a man creates, using the new technology of electricity, a new human life form, and that life form comes back to avenge his creation. So this is a kind of fairy tale that plays itself out over and over and over again. If I were to take something from that fairy tale, it's that our enchantment with whatever the new technological apparatuses will not... Last, and that it will ultimately lead to some form of harm or destruction. That seems to be a morality that's consistent across different times and places, and at least to me, suggests a kind of continuity to that to that morality. So, how are we thinking about this in terms of like fairy tales and technological production? Is there a kind of consistency that carries forth over time and place?
1: There is a lot of value in fairy tales, and, and and fairy tale retellings are becoming quite a big genre in their own right. And it's partly because of that. You know, people people do love these um, tropes that they find in, in fairy tales, and they do see things that they can apply to the modern world. And you mentioned Beauty and the Beast, and yeah, the concept of, of finding this perfect person in your life, finding love, and and to me, like love is a great driver. Love could be a huge driver in the universe, and for the future if we if if we if we allow that to happen in the book, I mentioned my notes, this Russian cosmos, this guy um nikolai Fedorovich Fedorov, and he had this notion that love was a key driver in the universe, and that the common task of all humankind would would be to have so much love for others that they would find a way through technology to. To resurrect the dead. I mean, it goes it goes as as, as deep as that. That sounds kind of fairy tale like. But yeah, you're talking about Frankenstein's monster and technical production. We we hear the term Frankenstein science often now, and that there's something to be feared about tinkering with science and producing something terrible that that might destroy us all. So. Those moralistic, if you like, the the older moralistic fairy tale tropes, I agree, can can be useful too. And some of them, some of them do have a place in the modern world.
0: So how is it that we keep believing that our tech products will end up like fairy tales? At least in the American version of fairy tales, things tend to end happily ever after. Why do we keep believing that our tech products will end up happily ever after?
1: I think that we're kind of, we're enchanted by technology in ways that we don't really understand and and we engage with it so readily and incorporate it into our lives so completely, particularly with social media, that we don't really want to believe that it can be unhealthy for us. We think we know how to flourish, but that's not always uh, right. For example, a face-to-face conversation could be a better technology than using social media and getting into a discussion which often turns into an argument, say on Facebook. I think that we shouldn't in any way belittle people's desires to, to kind of engineer happy endings. I think that desire is really deep rooted and it's born out of the the anguish of of uh, the temporary kind of arbitrary nature of living. And I think we should engage with that process as much as possible and but always recognizing, as I mentioned earlier, that, that, that happiness itself is a state that we don't understand. Everything is so complex and confounded and, and entangled at the moment that you can see why people want to latch on to happy endings, but we also have to find ways to understand the complexity of the world um, and to live with the uncertainties uncertainties of the world and still be happy and consider it a happy continuation, not necessarily a happy ending.
0: I'm still stuck on the idea that fairy tales offer a kind of very simple morality. I would argue that most American storytelling at this point um, is very simple and takes the form of the fairy tale. George Saunders argues in his piece, The Brain Dead Megaphone, I think quite compellingly that that kind of simple moralistic storytelling is really detrimental for the culture. He argues for the more detailed form of storytelling that he says, imagines humbly. That he says imagines specifically that he says imagines and creates persons who are demonstrably very much like the reader, so that the reader can have things like empathy, so that the reader can have things like a complicated understanding of the nature of the other person's reality. And he argues that the kind of Disneyfication or the mass media kind of production of very simple, very kind of morally simple stories has been really harmful to the culture. And I guess my question here is about the relationship between. Imagining on the one hand, and our political, social, and cultural reality, and the production of that reality on the other. Do you think that fairy tales and the kind of simple morality that our modern iteration of them offers is harmful to our way of being able to imagine, as George Saunders puts it, humbly?
1: I think it's harmful for us to get completely fixated on the simple morality of of fairy tales and and stories that say they're. Absolute fundamental simple moral truths. I think it's incredibly dangerous, and we've seen what can happen in the in the political sphere when people come up with these simple kind of homilies that we expect everybody to believe. In fact, I read somewhere today that the, the Nazis used fairy tales, they incorporated them into the kind of mythology that they were creating about the Reich. Um, so so that can be incredibly dangerous, I and mean, I'm very wary of any kind of simple moralising. But as I mentioned earlier, you can see that people quite often do hold that sort of simple moralising, particularly in fairy tales, kind of sacred. So I've really tried to move away from that and introduce as much ambiguity as I as I can and, and, and take, um, take away the Disneyfication of, of the fairy tales, firstly by working from the the first version, the first edition of the Grimm's Fairy Tales, so stripping them back to their original form and then building something radically different from there that allows not just the characters and technologies and, and magic to evolve, but allows the the morality to actually evolve as well. And because I think we need to accept that our our morality is going to evolve in extremely complex ways that we that we don't yet understand. And um, I think that we have to be open to that. The moment we fall into the trap of fixed and simplistic notions of good and evil, then we run into all all kinds of problems. Uh, there, there, there's a difficulty with that as well, though, because if you take away what people currently understand as the meanings in the story, the the, the meaningfulness, the relatability, the way that they relate to the characters in in, in the story, it's like, how are they then going to identify this with a story? Why should they care? And I found myself watching watching certain movies where i just don 't care about any of the characters anymore i don 't care whether they, whether they live or die, so that 's because all the relatability is gone, um, so it 's a very different and difficult balance to get between that relatability and having a kind of complex and new form of of morality in, in the stories.
0: Well, I guess my interest in the idea of the simple imaginings of fairy tales is that I worry that oftentimes those in charge of technological production are operating upon very simple fairy tale forms of imagining. That this product will create a happily ever after, that there is no need to complexly imagine all of the ways in which this product might interfere or harm or cause a disenchantment ultimately. And I worry that, for example, Facebook follows or thought it was following the hero's journey. And here is all of these new ways in which we are disconnected. Here is a technological means that will come and save the day by allowing for forms of new social connections. And, you know, reestablishing a kind of social harmony to the tune of something like connecting the world, which is Facebook's slogan or Facebook's mantra. And I worry that the simplicity of our storytelling, the tendency to fairy tale eyes, I'm making up a word there, fairy tale eyes, but I guess the the proper word in American culture is Disney fi, um, our way of thinking about the world is actually interfering into or potentially actively causing harm to the way that we to demand that tech companies produce ethically and actively causing harm to the culture of technological production by inhibiting, or at least not challenging, those acting in tech sphere to think more complexly.
1: I absolutely agree about the likes of Facebook and Twitter, and I've reduced my social media use a lot lately because... I just don't feel like there is a conversation happening there. Um, In fact, I was on Facebook, but I wouldn't let anybody respond to what I was saying because I would end each comment I put up with, this is not a conversation. Because I don't even feel that what you're doing when you're interacting with something like Facebook qualifies as a conversation. It's something else. We we kind of assume that this was an extension of the bulletin board form where we're having a conversation but in text. It just isn't good enough to assume that you're doing something wonderful for the world, that you're gonna you're gonna somehow magically connect the world together just by giving them a, a glorified bulletin board. Now there are ways that you could do that, which which would be a, a huge help to the planet, but if you're turning if you're turning people into products and you're basically using this as a way to sell them more stuff that they don't need, um, which is not giving them the, the, the means for striving for happiness. That is just incredibly simplistic thinking. It's, it's just childish thinking.
0: Can storytelling or can uh, fairy tales as a particular kind of storytelling challenge or perhaps change the culture? Can we think in these big terms or is that giving ourselves as literary people too much credit?
1: when i'm working on a future bright future grim fairy tale so much of what's happening within it is just part of the artistic and um, creative flow and And sometimes you can see the messages in there in retrospect and it's interesting to develop those as parts of other conversations. But yeah, it can be a bit of an onerous task to ask that of of writers to to always engage in that kind of enlightenment type world building for real in their work. It's a pretty onerous task.
0: I wanted to ask this in particular because you work on the form of the fairy tale, which is perhaps the most overtly fantastical form of storytelling. The term I think that any child will use or associate with the idea of the fairy tale is that it is made up. And this brings up a question that you know, every single not-quite-child undergraduate asks me when they discover that they're taking a class on the ethics of technology, prisoned primarily through literature or made-up stories. How can made-up stories have a claim about the real world, or what claim do made-up stories make? about their translatability or their application to the real world. And so that's something I wanted to ask you. How can stories, things we make up, especially fairy tales, intervene into the real world of technological culture, production, and ethics? And I guess what I'm asking here is, why learn ethics about the real world of technological production from made up stories? The universe is
1: made of atoms, but our lives are also made of stories that we call conventions and cultures and societies. And indeed, in the Buddhist sense, which is important to me, um, selves their stories of, of a of a kind as well. How are selves um, stories? Selves, our, ourselves. We yeah, are.
0: Yeah. How ourselves? We stories? are
1: stories. We're a kind of we're our own narratives, and and those narratives are looping around in their heads in a process that we call consciousness we, we don't know what that is we don't know what that term means but it's looping back on itself it's kind of eating its own tail and it's 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 uh story that's unfolding in our heads in a a kind of... Let me see if I understand what
0: you're saying. What you're saying is that in order for us to understand ourselves as coherent selves, in other words, as individuals, we take a chain of all of the things that happened in the past, things that maybe happened at a time prior to who we are now, and we create a narrative of who we are based on where we understand ourselves to have been and where we come now, re-understanding the moment of where we are now based on our... Ability to identify causality or causal links between who we have been and who we have become. Is that approximately what you're getting at?
1: Yes, I think that's, that's approximately what I'm getting at. And um, the author, Douglas Hofstadter, called Consciousness a, a Strange Loop, So all those memories and connections and continuities loop into themselves and produce what we might call a self or consciousness. So you can see that as a kind of self story.
0: So if we're calling ourselves a kind of self story, then how do we think about the relationship between real selves and real stories and the kind of made up stories? that we learn, for example, in fairy tales. And in that sense, if we are taking the idea that made-up stories can have a real impact on the way that we see the world, what is that impact for our way of thinking about not only the self, but also our relationship to technological culture and production?
1: Kind of going back a bit to what we were seeing uh-huh. earlier on, the technological world doesn't really teach us anything much about ethics. We were talking about in Facebook earlier on, and it's ridiculous simplicity of its so-called mission. So I think we need to have all kinds of meditations, whether they're literary or self-reflective meditations or whatever, on what it means to be and become in this astonishingly complicated world. And we have in our heads as well these stories of of certainties and and really those certainties are now dead in the dust and so we need stories of ethical complexity we need to upgrade ourselves as well as thinking about upgrading ourselves physically and turning into cyborgs we need to upgrade our thinking by self-reflection on on, on what it means to be and to become in in this world that we that we live in and it's a really messy and uncertain process but the more people can engage in it the better Um, and we can we we can generate memes that resonate we're talking about the phrase frankenstein science earlier on for example Um, and we everybody knows what it means and it's a kind of mimetic blend of science and science fiction and fantasy that people have come to understand as a caution about tinkering with science in dangerous ways but we need to be constantly engaged in this process of, of creating better memes and better abstractions. And who knows where we can find them? We might find them in new forms of fairy tale.
0: In your book, you quote the British science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, who famously said, any sufficient technology is indistinguishable from magic. Magic, of course, is a staple of fairy tales. So I guess I'm wondering, is there a way in which we can think about the magic in classic fairy tales as a kind of technology? Or what can we think about when we think about magic as a form of the fairy tale or a staple of the fairy tale that provides insight into how we think about our conceptualized technology?
1: Um, well, it's strange speaking to a fantasy author recently and you'd think a fantasy author would be completely into magic but she said to me oh I don't like magic so I don't I don't really want to use magic in my fantasy books and I said well that's strange because I don't really want to use magic either what I mean is I I want there to be a proper mechanism for the magic but at the same time as I mentioned earlier sci-fi can get far too bogged down in the technology of of what that proper mechanism might be. Um, so I mean, people don't assume that their smartphones work by magic, or many people have no idea how they do work. And if you gave your smartphone to, to a 16th century blacksmith, so a type of engineer, I guess, that blacksmith might consider this phone to be the devil's work. You'd have no understanding of it. If you update that example, you give a 24th century device to a modern day engineer. So that modern day engineer might call this highly advanced technology, but that's just as meaningless as calling it the devil's work or magic. So the proper mechanism for magic is simply a paradigm that we can't even properly conceptualize, for which it doesn't make any sense to get bogged down in the technicalities because they're too unfathomable. Um, It makes sense almost for Taurus technologies to be rather blurry in their details. As to Arthur C. Clarke's aphorism, I'd extend it to say that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature because everything that we create is a consequence of our indivisibility from nature. Nothing is really supernatural, i.e. above or beyond nature. But it seems that human beings love the term magic, so it's interesting to try and find a way that it could potentially be realized.
0: I think we have time for one last question, and I wanted to ask, in our age of technological production, are you optimistic about where we end up? Are we looking at happily ever after in our fairy tale of technological production?
1: I think we're kind of looking at contingently ever after. Um, There are so many contingencies involved and the basic assumption or requirement here for any kind of happiness is that we continue to survive in the universe and that we don't annihilate ourselves, commit omnicide as as it's known, basically kill off the entire planet and everybody in it. That's the most fundamental requirement. And I think with things like rogue AI and, and nuclear weapons, there are all kinds of ways that we can completely self-annihilate that are all these existential risks. And the Astronomer Royal, a few years ago, said he thought that the chances of our surviving into the next century were something like 50-50. So, so that's a kind of fundamental requirement. Are we going to survive to realise any of these possibilities? I think if we can make it... <laughs> to the end of the century then there are a whole host of possibilities open up and there are a whole host of opportunities for forms of, of happily ever after ways of, of living as well as 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 we wish to, and, and having our loved ones in our lives uh, for as long as we possibly can. There are all kinds of ways of flourishing in, in an eudaimonic sense, a eudaimonic sense. As long as we engage with the ethics of what that actually means to be happy and to, to be flourishing in the universe, we we have to engage with those questions now. Otherwise, we're going to get led off by our technologies in some horrific directions. Thank you very much, TJ. Thank you.